You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing our series, our year-long series in the book of Romans. Last week, we saw Paul's preamble. He's introducing himself to a church that he's never actually met in person, and he's greeting them kindly. He's explaining his apostolic calling. And now, this next portion of the letter is explaining the why. The why behind, you know, his reasons for writing to him, and ultimately, why He plans on coming and visiting them in Rome soon. This is a sort of declaration of Paul's motivation, his motivation. And he begins to explain, I pray for you. I want to see these people that I continue to pray for. I've heard about your reputation. Now, remember, Rome was the center of the known world. Anything that happened in Rome was was that word spread to the rest of the empire. So he's heard wherever he goes he hears about the reputation of their faith and he's got these spiritual gifts that he wants to impart or or to to uh, bless the other the, the the saints here in Rome with and he also believes that they have spiritual gifts that will benefit him as well and so he wants to experience this mutual uplifting and encouragement among the saints it's all very reasonable stuff and then he says something that I think that we really need to pause and consider today. And it's found in verses 14 and 15. He says this, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now we're going to get to some of these details in just a moment, but think about this. I'm under obligation and I am eager to fulfill it. So let's think about that. Let's think about obligation first. Obligation means a set of, is being indebted to someone. So say you came to me and you're like, hey, Christian, I need to borrow 10 bucks. And I said, you know what? You know the strict budget that Michelle's got me on, right? Like that 10 bucks, I gotta gotta spread that pretty far. So 
I'm going to lend this 10 bucks to you, but you got to get this 10 bucks to me back by the end of Friday because I'm going to need it. And so from this moment forward, between now and when you get the money back to me, you are indebted to me. This, this is a $10 debt that you now hold, and with interest if you're late, by the way. Now, let's, let's spread the illustration a little bit further. Say, I come to you and I say, hey, listen, I've got this 10 bucks, and I need you to get it to so-and-so. I know that you're going to run into them tomorrow uh, when you see them, and I need you to give them the 10 bucks. You are still indebted, but the indebtedness has now broadened. You are not just simply obligated to me. You are obligated to the other person. And Paul sees his life as under obligation, not simply to God, but to the people around him because of the life that he's been entrusted with. Not a life entrusted simply for him to hoard, but to give to others through the gospel message. He's under a sense of obligation, and yet he's eager. What Paul's explaining here is a this like sincere, unforced enthusiasm and passion. And if we're to be honest, these are two motivations that we don't typically see as being related to one another. We are either eager to do something or like, oh, I'm obligated to do it. I'm really passionate about this thing or like, yeah, I have to do it. But rarely is it both for us. And when it comes to the life of faith, we tend to lean towards one or the other. There are those uh, like myself that tend to approach the Christian life under a sense of obligation but lacking enthusiasm. These are those who think deeply about the responsibilities of the Christian life and what is required of them. And we think things like, you know, it doesn't really matter if your heart is in it. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. Like, it's right or wrong, and you do it because it's right. Duh. It's a very duty-bound way to live. And with it comes a constant sense of guilt over not having done enough. And in the long run, it lacks joy and enthusiasm. And it can tend, and I've seen this, is it can tend to lead to burnout. But then others, on the other hand, tend to approach the Christian life with a sense of eagerness and enthusiasm, but lacking a sense of obligation. They feel deeply about the things of God. They are passionate to see God at work, but they lack the discipline in order to pers uh, persevere in that work. They, they tend to wait until their heart is all the way in it to then dive into obedience. And then once they dive in, when things get tough or their, their own emotions begin to be conflicted, they stop, they hesitate, they pause. It's a very feeling-led way to live. And in the long run, it lacks follow-through and consistency. And so I think whether you know, you're lacking enthusiasm or you're lacking a sense of responsibility or maybe both. Maybe you're like, uh, I actually have neither of those things. Fair enough. Either way, it all seems to stem from the same place. It all seems to stem from a lack of gospel motivation. And what I believe it means is that the good news has not impacted you at your core as it should. Because when it does, everything begins to change. There was a poet from the past, William Cowper, who once said these words, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Wouldn't that be something? 
to see what God requires and what you enjoy coming into alignment, complementing each other. And that's the hope that we have. You see, the gospel forms a people that are eager to live lives of righteousness. Those, as Paul describes himself, are eager to serve God and others with their whole heart that genuinely desire right and then make every effort to complete it. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how the gospel changes us and specifically gives us a new motivation. And we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at the scope of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the revelation of the gospel. Let's look first at the scope of the gospel. Now, we need to do a little bit of historic work here. One of the significant issues that the Roman church was working through in the first century when Paul is writing this letter was racial disunity. In the early days of the church, in 49 AD, the emperor named Claudius expelled all of the Jews from the city of Rome for five years. There was this mass ethnic purge of all Jews from Rome. And so this Christian church that had significant Jewish representation, in fact, it was formed by Jewish converts to Christianity on the day of Pentecost. It all of a sudden became entirely Gentile, which means non-Jewish, overnight, like instantly. And so a group that would have probably been the minority in the church for maybe like a decade or a decade and a half, all of a sudden became the majority. And for five years, they experienced a homogenous church, which means you look around and everyone is just like you. And so in 54 AD, the edict was lifted. All the Romans with Jewish heritage came back into Rome, but when they stepped into the church, they found something very alarming. It was a culture shock because what used to be so familiar was all of a sudden foreign. Things had changed over those five years in a homogenous church as it would. And so they all began to experience this cultural tension in the church as people made demands from both sides, Jews and Gentiles, to worship God in the way that aligned with their own culture. And so their Christianity, like so many of us today, was motivated by their preferences. And any time we elevate our preferences over serving our neighbor, then two things happen. Passion for the gospel decreases because the gospel is allergic to selfishness. And you can't be passionate about the gospel and your own preferences at the same time. So passion for the gospel decreases and conflict with others begins to increase because you begin to view the people around you as a threat to your comfortability. And they begin to make demands. Well, our way is better than your way. No, our way is better than your way. Well, it was better when you weren't here. Yeah, it was better than when, when we weren't here. Maybe we should form our own church. Maybe our own denomination. And so one reason the Apostle Paul writes to them is in order to settle, and settle this and really resolve this tension by reminding them of the good news. That God, through his son Jesus Christ, has formed a new humanity, something entirely different, and it functions differently. It's one that's not based on race or gender or cultural practices or religious performance or social status, but is based simply on faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. And that this invitation to belong has been extended to all people, to the whole world. And he begins to list this. He says, the Jews first, 
Now, theologically and chronologically, the hope of the Messiah came to and through the Jewish people first. But as we read on, we see that this grace has been extended to the Gentile world, that's us, as well. But then also, he takes it a step further. And he shocks everyone. He says, actually, grace has been extended even to the barbarians. Those outside of Greco-Roman culture, those considered totally uncivilized, which would have been scandalous for both the Greeks, the Gentiles, and the Jews. Everyone would have been like, wait, what? Them too? Paul's like, yeah, them too. In every season, in every generation, we always have our like them too moment, and God's like, yeah, them too. But like them? Yes, them. So here's the application. You've got to attach your motivations to something bigger than your own preferences. You simply have to. If it's about um, music style, if it's about preaching preferences, if it's about a demographic in a church, if it's about some other matter of cultural preference, then listen to me, you will forever struggle to stay motivated and engaged. And what will end up happening is you will find yourself at odds with other people in the church. And you probably will exist the rest of your Christian life bouncing around from community to community because you never find the place that quite fits your preferences. But if you attach your motivation, listen, to the scope of the gospel, that that God's kingdom, this, this vast and global kingdom, and that he has commissioned you to participate in welcoming others in, then you won't have time for trivial conflict, and there will never be a dull moment. There's no such thing as dull Christian discipleship, just dull disciples who have lost track of what this is all about. This is all big, one big way of Paul saying, you have to remember God's saving grace is to all people. And you have to live like this is actually true. This can't just be theoretical. This has to change the way that you operate and function as a community together. Now, at the height of the civil rights movement in the early 60s, Martin Luther King preached a sermon, uh, The Drum Major Instinct, where he said these words, Worship is where people of all levels of life come together to realize their oneness and unity under God. And whenever the church, consciously or unconsciously, meaning on purpose or not on purpose, caters to one class, it loses the spiritual force of the whosoever will let him come doctrine and is in danger of becoming a little more than a social club with a thin veneer of religiosity. Think about that. Whether it's the first century, whether it's the 1960s, or whether it's today, we are always in danger of becoming a social club with a thin veneer of religiosity. And so the way that we combat this and really stay true to what God has called us to be is by staying focused on our mission, which is to glorify God by making disciples of all people. And this is how we can actually begin to see the landscape of our racially divided city changed as we, as God's people, begin to demonstrate this new humanity and live as if it's true. And so when we keep this central, the scope, 
then we will carry within us a sense of eagerness as well as obligation and responsibility to see this realized in our generation, for this not to just be a Christian pipe dream, but see and experience it in our time, in our generation, in our city, and in our church. Amen? Now let's look secondly at the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If we look within ourselves and we see apathy and apprehension and hesitation and fear, the answer is not to dig deep and to try to muster up more willpower. The answer is not to beat ourselves up for the way that we lack in the Christian life. The answer is to get the truth of God's grace and love deep into our hearts. This is how we experience power. You see, in the world, to experience strength, you've got to be strong. To experience strength, you've got to become strong. But in the kingdom of God, it works entirely differently. In the kingdom of God, to experience strength, you've got to acknowledge that you're weak. To be filled, you've got to be empty. The apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 12, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I lack and I acknowledge my lack, then God's fullness fills me and his abundance begins to overflow in my life. See, Paul's not just describing a sudden burst of willpower, but an ongoing explosive power. In fact, the word here in the Greek for power is dunamis. It's where we get the English word dynamite. The, the, the message of the gospel is not good advice about how to lift yourself up to live a better life. It is the power of God from on high that raises us to new life, not making kind of good people better, but taking spiritually dead men and women and making us alive and now animating our lives. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave. Don't be sleeping on this phrase because I'm gonna be repeating it. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is now detonating within us. Detonating apathy, detonating apprehension, detonating fear, detonating unbelief, detonating sin within us. Dynamite power. You see, sadly, a number of evangelicals will only ever experience the surface level effects of this dynamic power, and maybe this is you. You recite the creeds, you pray the prayers, you sing the songs, you go to church, you do all the Christian things that you're supposed to do. But by and large, you are left almost entirely unaffected. And if you were to be honest, it's a daily fight to simply care about the things of God let alone to be enthusiastic about them. Why? It's because you still view Christianity as something that you do for God instead of it being something that God does in and through you. And this was true in my own life. I was raised in a Christian environment, 
I went to church, I prayed the prayers, I sang the songs, I led the songs, and yet I was altogether unchanged. I was nominally Christian. And this was all until a conversation with my wife on, on, on some just unassuming night where she turned to me and she asked me the most simple question. She said, do you even understand the grace of God? And in a humbling moment, I had to face the facts. I did not. The grace of God had not affected me deep in my soul. And yet in that moment of humility and repentance, a, a, a spark there was a spark in me. The fuse was lit. And though, you know, my life is far from perfect, I, just like so many of you, am a living testimony of God's saving and transforming grace. Because when this gospel touches the deepest part of our lives, everything begins to change. It'll be like the difference of activating a stick of dynamite, dynamite on the surface of a boulder or drilling down to its core, dropping it in and there detonating at its core. One just scratches the surface. The other transforms the boulder completely. And so when we truly grasp the depth of God's grace to save us and to change us, when we take it in, when we personalize it as not just truth in general, but true for me. When we receive that there's nothing that we could do to earn or deserve God's forgiveness and his kindness, but that he's given it to us freely through Jesus Christ, the fuse is sparked and the rest will be history. See the power of the gospel. Finally, let's look at the revelation of the gospel. The revelation of the gospel. Now, everyone in the world has at least some version of their own gospel. Some version of essentially that, that, that spells out, you now this is what life should be like. This is what's gone wrong with it all. This is who will fix things. And this is how life can be put right again. This is what life should be like. This is what's gone wrong. This is who's going to fix it. And this is what life will be like when things are put right again. And what we believe about these points will motivate our lives. Let, let me say that differently. What we believe about these points is currently motivating your life right now. If you believe the problem is finances, then money will be the answer. If you believe that loneliness is the problem, then a relationship will be the answer. If you believe that boredom is the problem, then pleasure will be the answer. If we believe that our religious efforts are the answer, then we're going to be constantly motivated by guilt and shame. Shame for all the things that we've done wrong and guilt for all the things that we are not. If we think the answer is philanthropy and human kindness, then we're going to be constantly motivated by the ever-growing need because the need is always going to be greater than what we can provide. And as we've seen lately... There are those who are motivated by the gospel of politics. The antichrist gospel of politics that says, this is what life should be like. This is what's gone wrong with it all. This is who is gonna fix it for us. And when that happens, then things will be put right again. We're all motivated by something or someone that we believe deep down is gonna make us whole again. And we're being driven by that vision. 
It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of what is driving you, what is motivating you, what is compelling your heart. But only the gospel of Jesus is able to give us adequate answers to these questions. Only the gospel is adequate and comprehensive enough for us to hang all of our motivation on and all of our future on and all of our vision on and all of our hope on. When we seek to understand what life should be like, guess what? We don't have to guess at this. The Bible tells us the story of creation, of a world that God made in order to be filled with life and freedom and flourishing where we were at peace with God and peace with others and peace with ourselves. When we seek to understand what's gone wrong with it all, we're told about the reality of sin, that God created us to worship and serve him and to love our neighbors, but we rebelled against God and we lived for ourselves. And as a result of our broken relationship with God, every other relationship to everything and everyone became fractured. And left to ourselves, we are under condemnation and steeped in conflict. When we seek to understand who will put things right again, we're introduced to Jesus Christ, who came into this world to make things right through his life, his death, his resurrection. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5, for, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when we seek to experience this for ourselves, to not just see these things as generally true, but true for us, we're given the hope that we can, that we can be made right with God, and we can be made right with our world and ourselves, and the way that we can is through faith. And Paul sums up his thesis statement. He sums up all that he says and all he will continue to say throughout the entire letter to the Romans in this one verse in verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or faith from beginning to end. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith or said backwards, those who live by faith are those who are declared righteous, made right. So let me conclude with a story, um, and it comes from a, a classic movie called Chariots of Fire. It's a story of English runners that go into the Olympics to represent their country and to honor, you know, the sake of their country, and there's a few different motivations that we see revealed. One, one runner says, I run to feel God's pleasure, but we're introduced to another uh, athlete named Harold Abrams who explains the reason why he races and what motivates him when he gets out there on the track. And he says, now in one hour's time, I'm going to be out there. I'm going to raise my eyes and I'm going to look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? And what this illustrates is really so many of our lives. In the race of faith, every day is like running this lonely race to justify our existence, to prove ourselves to God, and to prove ourselves to the world. No wonder why you're tired. No wonder why you're exhausted in the Christian life. No wonder why you lack enthusiasm for the life of righteousness. 
Because nothing drains God's people of spiritual vitality like believing the lie that God saves us by grace through faith and then leaves us to run the rest of the race justifying our existence. Today's the day to open your heart to the gospel. No more surface-level gospel. No more surface-level Christianity. Take it in. Drill it to the core. Receive it as true for you. And let the power of God detonate within. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this word.